mind reader. Uh, she often kind of gets to my point before I do, which is actually great. Uh, it saves me from having to do some of the spade work I plan to do. Uh, you see, because what we get here in the opening uh, verses uh, of the Lord's Prayer is a bit of a conundrum. You see, last week we talked about God as Father, and then this week we're saying, hallowed be thy name, right? And so last week I said to you, Jesus comes and he teaches us to come to the Father and to say, Father, to say, to say Dad. And it, it, it's uh, a certain intimacy that is implied in this prayer. And I, and I even said to you, you don't go to God and you don't start with your majesty, right? Which we could. This week, I'm telling you, you should probably go to God and say, your majesty, right? Or at least there's a certain reverence that should be there with the way in which we approach God. Uh, William Barclay, a, a famous biblical scholar, says that uh, following up our Father with hallowed be thy name saves the idea of fatherhood of God from all sentimentality and sets down in unmistakable terms the inescapable obligation of reverence. Hallowed be thy name is another way of saying holy is your name, God. Right? Your name is holy. You, God, are holy. You are set apart. You are different. Some of us uh, might envision God the Father in gentle and, and kind terms, maybe like a Mr. Rogers figure who I quite admired uh, and I think is a great man and, and, and to be emulated. God, uh, whose name we hallow, is uh, perhaps a little different. Uh, the analogy I'm going to make, I know, is not perfect, but stay with me. Have you seen the movie Taken? Liam Neeson's character, you know this one? He's an ex-CIA agent whose 17-year-old daughter is captured by some kidnappers. And then there's this famous scene, well, I mean, the whole movie is about him, tracking her down and finding the enemies and making them pay, right? And there's a famous scene where he's talking to the kidnappers online, or on a phone, rather, and he says the following... I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want from me. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If, you're, if you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. I will kill you. This is a little closer to hallowed be thy name, right? I mean, not entirely. Don't get me wrong. The father who is gentle and kind in this scenario is a father that you should approach with a reverent kind of healthy fear, right? You don't mess with Liam Neeson's daughter in this scenario. I know the analogy is not perfect. I admit it. But here's what I know. Jesus is teaching us to pray, and he begins by calling God Father, and then he follows it up immediately by having us call him Holy. Holy, holy. 
God as Father and God as Holy are distinct categories, but they are not incompatible. And they each have their own set of character traits, and they each say something important about the nature of God. Both sets are required for a fuller picture of the God to whom we pray. The holiness of God is what sets God apart from all created beings. The holiness of God points us to God's transcendence. Now, when I was a sophomore in college, I took a class called Christian Theology 101 at Asbury College. And there I learned that God is both imminent and transcendent. When we say that God is imminent, it means that God is near to us, that God sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in our very hearts. And when we speak of God as Father, we might think in these terms and would be appropriate to. The Father who sends the Son and the Spirit to be Emmanuel, God with us. But Christian Theology 101 also taught me that God is transcendent. This is the God of creation, the God who spins all things into being, but is not part of the created order. The God who is always bigger yet, who is beyond our human capacity for understanding. The God whose power is far greater than ours and far greater than anything we could imagine. Power that is beyond. His righteousness is perfect. His beauty and glory is resplendent. This God demands respect and reverence and awe, and not because God is egotistical, but because that is simply the proper response to someone who is infinitely greater than all the presidents and the kings and the queens of this earth combined. When you are in the presence of an eternal God, this is what you do. You would do well to remember that our reverence should far exceed whatever you might offer an earthly king. This God is, in one word, holy. And when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are speaking to this kind of God. Good Christian theology pulls together the transcendent holy God and the imminent fatherly God into one being because that's precisely what Jesus does when he prays, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Today's scripture reading reminds us of the holiness of God. Both of them do, in fact. We, we read from Isaiah 6 and we, we read from Revelation 4 and both of them have this uh, triumphal uh, throne room scene where everyone's gathered around God crying, holy, holy, holy. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, we'll read this again together. Isaiah 6, chapter 1, or verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah gives us a vision, a vision he saw, a vision of the Father in the heavenlies, and he's sitting on a throne. He is in his throne room, 
and he is high and he is lifted up where he should be and the train of whatever robe God is wearing it falls so far down that the end of it fills the temple. And then above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Two, covered his feet. And two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'm interested in that line, the whole earth is full of his glory, because it reminds us when we look around at the whole earth, we can find the residue of God's creation and God's imprint on the various parts of the created order. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when we watch a beautiful sunset, we might think, That is a beautiful sunset, but the creator of that sunset is more beautiful yet. But Isaiah is not done. You see, he sees this scene, and he sees God in God's fullness, and he has a response here. And the response goes like this. In verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What Isaiah is doing here is he is showing us what prayer can and, and maybe even should look like. We are approaching a God who requires our reverence. In our modern 21st century Christian world, we often fail at this part. I'll just go ahead and say it. I know I do. We often come to God quite casually, right? And maybe for good reason, and we'll get back to that good reason. But we often come very casually, in nothing that looks quite like Isaiah 6, where we say to ourselves, woe is me, I'm in the presence of the creator of this world. I am a man of unclean lips, and the people I dwell with are unclean as well. Woe is me. Uh, I've been waiting to share, I don't believe I've shared this with you before, what I'm about to say, but I've been holding on to this one for quite a while, and I'm excited to share it with you. It's, it's from um, a man I quite admire, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've, I've used his, his work before. It's someone, uh, if you don't know Bonhoeffer, uh, he died uh, essentially a martyr uh, in uh, the Nazi concentration camps. And um, he's a man of, uh, of wisdom uh, and of faith that endured all the way to his his own death. And, and he's in prison at this point, and he's writing a letter to a friend. And it says something that I've personally found quite challenging. And it's, it's one of these things I've kind of held on to for a while and, and tried to allow it to inform my own theology, the, my, my own way of thinking about who God is uh, and how we should do life together. And this is what he says. He says, I notice more and more 
how much I am thinking and perceiving things in line with the Old Testament, he says. Thus, in recent months, I have been reading much more the Old than the New. Only when one knows that the name of God may not be uttered, may one sometimes speak the name of Jesus Christ. He's going to go on, but just so that we're clear on what he's saying here, is that the Jewish idea of God's name was one that was so holy that you don't say it out loud. And in the Old Testament, I think I've said this before, often the God's name itself, which is YHWH, and we very casually call him Yahweh, but a good Jew would not do this. In fact, they transliterated, and they would call him Adonai, which means Lord, or something like that. And so when you see Lord in your Old Testament, what's happening there is it's a transliteration of, uh, of YHWH, the name of God, the thing that's not meant to be spoken. And Bonhoeffer reminds us that it's only when we understand just how holy this name is that sometimes it's okay to speak the name of Jesus Christ himself. God incarnate. But the first part we have to remember in order to fully understand the second part. He goes on. It's only when one loves life and the earth so much that with it everything seems to be lost and at, the, and at its end may... Uh, let me start over. Only when one loves life and the earth so much that with it everything seems uh, to be lost... And at its end, may one believe in the resurrection of the dead and a new world. Only when one accepts the law of God as binding for oneself, may one perhaps sometimes speak of grace. And only when the wrath and vengeance of God against God's enemies are allowed to stand, can something of forgiveness and the love of enemies touch our hearts." Whoever wishes to be and perceive things too quickly and too directly in New Testament ways is, to my mind, no Christian. We have already, of course, discussed this a few times, and every day confirms for me that it is right. One can and must not speak the ultimate word prior to the penultimate word. A penultimate word, by the way, is the word that comes before the ultimate, right? And so what Bonhoeffer is teaching us is that you must first understand that penultimate word if you're going to speak and fully understand the ultimate word. Isaiah 6 shows us very clearly the penultimate word when Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I am standing in front of a God to whom we say, holy, holy, holy. But once you understand that penultimate word, then, and only then, can we move to the ultimate word. And what we find in the book of Revelation is indeed what I think is a good version of the ultimate word. 
Our reading today was from Revelation chapter 4, and if you want, go ahead and, and open up to Revelation 4. It's, it's that throne room. It's the same throne room that we see in Isaiah 6. And there again, you have these angelic figures, and they are shouting, holy, holy, holy to God, right? It's not, it's not Revelation 4, however, that I want to point us to. It's important we see that throne room and understand that's the context of what's about to happen. But it's actually Revelation 5 that I want to get us to. And if you'll turn your page to Revelation 5, we will see something akin to the ultimate word. Chapter 5 opens with a search for one who is holy enough to open the seals that will trigger the redemption of the world. And there is sadness because no one can be found. And they are looking for a lion but instead they find a slain lamb. And in verse 6, we read the following. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. And here we get close to the ultimate word. You, O slain lamb, that is Christ, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. The same angelic host that was around the throne of God is shouting, holy, 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 to the one who sits on the throne. And then what happens next? The slain lamb comes into the middle of that very scene and they say the same thing to the slain lamb. Holy, holy, holy. If the penultimate word is, woe is me, I have unclean lips, then the ultimate word is what we find in Revelation 5. You, O Christ, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you have purchased us with your blood. When we approach God in prayer, we are approaching this holy God. Annie Dillard has a lovely quote uh, that has been on the slide kind of making its round, and, uh, and here she's an author. If you don't know Annie Dillard, I highly recommend. She's got a, a wonderful book called Pilgrim at uh, Tinker Creek. It, it's about the beauty of creation and, and how she finds God uh, in, in the created order, um, though she wouldn't say that so directly. Um, I think she won a Pulitzer Prize for this, actually. And uh, anyway, so she says uh, what we've got right here. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke, 
Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. We are in the presence of the Holy One. And we often so blithely invoke his name. I, uh, I resemble the remark uh, that she begins with. Sometimes I worry that I don't fully believe it myself, but God help my unbelief, right? All right, so what are we supposed to do with all of this? This is meant to be a practical sermon, by the way, uh, one that is about prayer, and, and then what we're supposed to take all of this holy of holies business and, and put it into action. And, and so I've got a few things here that I, I want to leave you with. And the first goes like this, that uh, if you know uh, the ACTS model of prayer, A-C-T-S, the first two are A and C, which is adoration and confession. Uh, both of these, I think, get wrapped up into the holiness that is God. And so we come, and starting with the, the confession part, when we come before a, a holy God, it is incumbent upon us to start with, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? And to recognize that who we are needs some cleansing. And by the way, we didn't finish it, but in that Isaiah passage, you know what happens next? One of those seraphim comes with a, a holy ember straight from the pyre that's sitting in front of the Holy of Holies. And, and, it, and he takes it and he cleans Isaiah's lips and presumably his soul with it. And it is our job to come before the Holy God in confession and repentance on a regular basis, reminding ourselves of who we are not and in whose presence we are, and to shout holy, holy, holy. And then along with that is, is this idea of humility, coming humbly before God. The phrase or the song that kind of keeps coming back to me is, is, is humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. You know this song? It's one of these from like the 90s probably, 80s even. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. If you are a person who is in routine intimacy with the Almighty, which is what prayer is, one of the things that should come out of this is a humility, is a lessening of one's pride and ego, and a recognition that I am not holy, but I am in the presence of a God who accepts me. And then if we go backward from the confession part of ACT and S, we, we go to adoration. And this is what I really want to leave you with here. Just a, a few ways in which we can add adoration to our daily lives. Because we are supposed to pray without ceasing, at least this is what Paul commends us to. And I do think there are ways to do this as we walk about our daily lives. And one of them is indeed to increase our own adoration of God. And the first is looking at the beauty of creation. The beauty of creation. Isaiah says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
the whole earth is full of his glory, right? This is what we just read. And when we see the beauty and the glory of creation, it should drive us to admire it. But it should also drive us to adore the creator of it. It is wonderful to admire the beauty of God's creation, and I highly recommend it. I love to take a good long walk and to watch how beautiful this world is that God has created. But what it should do is then drive us one step further, one step higher to the creator of this world. The second thing is praying the Psalms. Adding adoration to your day would, would do well if, if you uh, begin to uh, maybe learn a few Psalms. Maybe it's starting your day with just one. Maybe it's just like two or three throughout the course of a week, right? There's a, a Sunday school class that's begun with the adults where we're reading through uh, various psalms, uh, and I think it's a great way to, to add some adoration in your life. There's a lot more that I could say here. I'm going to leave it at that for now. The third thing I'd say is, um, is to fill your day with music. This at least speaks to me. I, I hope it speaks to you too. I'm pretty sure it does. Luther says that when I cannot pray, I sing. <laughs> when I can't pray, I sing. And I find myself uh, resonating with this idea. Whether it's somebody else's songs, whether it's a song I'm just making up on the spot, there is an unmistakable spiritual quality to music as a whole. The book of Psalms itself is a hymn book. Most of it was written to be put to music, and for good reason. I do think that uh, music is this window into a spiritual um, awakening that we often can't get to in other ways. I've experienced this in my own life where I've, I've found that music is an important part of who I am. Uh, I remember probably the first moment this happened with clarity. I was either in the 10th or 11th grade, and I was in the band. Uh, and we were playing as a band uh, a tune called Elsa's Procession to the Cathedral by Richard Wagner. It's not in any way a spiritual song, but it was for me that day. And I remember very clearly I uh, was playing the trombone, and uh, the song, and it probably won't mean anything to you like it meant to me that day, but, but I was playing the song, and it's all whole notes. There's nothing particularly special about this for the trombone in particular, um, but the way the song unfolds is it's this gradual procession, that's in the title, uh, and it's this, um, it starts kind of quiet and unassuming, and then it grows to the end, it's about six and a half minutes long, and then by the time it gets to the sixth minute, uh, it's in a full fort fortissimo, probably, and, and the whole band is playing these really loud chords, and, and I can remember being in the band, and I'm, I'm, I'm just like wrapped up into the music at this point. And then in minute six, and I listened to it on Tuesday, and it had me moved uh, to tears on, on this past Tuesday in preparation for the sermon. In minute six, all of a sudden, uh, the percussion, uh, who had not been playing to this point, comes in and there's this really tight snare drum roll, right? And then it's suddenly like, oh, what's that song? I meant to, say, I meant to prepare this. Um, 
there's a Phil Collins song where, like, what is it? The, the, you get through the whole song until the very end, there's like this percussion, in, and it comes out of nowhere. It's the same thing. And suddenly the percussion come in from nowhere, and then there's like these clanging cymbals, and, and there's this, again, like, so if you were at this uh, extra loud level before, well, now it's just taken through the roof. And I remember being completely swept away, and the song ends, and I'm in a full sweat as a 10th grader, right, playing the trombone. And I had never had an experience like this in my life before. And it was one in which I was uh, fully engrossed. And I thought, oh my goodness, did everybody else in this room just have that same experience? And I kind of looked down the line and I realized very quickly the answer was no. Uh, <laughs> I was in my own world. But the point is this that music has this way into your soul, certainly mine, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in here, that other things just can't do, words can't do, but music has a way of piercing through. And so if you can fill your day with music, I highly recommend it. Part of this for me um, is, is personal, the music side of this, and it actually gets into the, the fourth point here. And, and this one is, is from our book that we're all reading together, right? Uh, the, I, I saw a bunch of the copies have been taken from the, uh, the table out there, which is great. Uh, I high, highly recommend. Uh, hopefully you're not taking it and, and setting it on your shelf. Maybe you're, you're reading through it. Uh, and uh, this last one is, this last point is straight from here, which is worship with your own weirdness. <laughs> This is what Peter Gregg says. Worship with your own weirdness. God made you unique. You don't have to like the same music as me. You don't have to be moved by Richard Wagner. You've got to be you. You're the only you there is in this world. So you better be the best one you can be. The world needs the you that God created. And you are going to worship with the weirdness that makes you, you. And so Greg writes, my soul is awakened by climbing mountains, by particular writers, and by certain friends whose company consistently points me back to Jesus. Time spent enjoying such pleasures is something my soul requires, he says. I don't do these things just because they're nice, but because they're necessary. It is a matter of rigorous spiritual discipline, therefore, to make space in my life for the great outdoors, for T.S. Eliot, for Annie Dillard, and R.S. Thomas, for big sloshing mugs of tea with friends like Phil, Jill and Mike, Scott, Ken, and Tim. And then he says this, these people help me to hallow the Father's name in deep humanity. If you're going to find your way in the world, this is a good start. Find prayer that works for you. Find worship that works for you. If you find what lights up your humanity, what lights up your soul, what sets you on fire, what leaves you breathless with nothing but a wow or a thank you, God, then you're likely getting close. But let me be clear, this is not self-indulgence, and it's certainly not a self-centering. 
if that is what's happening, then you're probably doing it wrong. It is an experience that resonates so deeply with who you are that it pulls you out of a false version of you and connects you with the bigness of the world and the bigness of our creator. These last few weeks, I keep asking God for like a phrase for, for some kind of word. And, and there's one that's just been coming back to me and again and again. And the phrase is, eyes up and eyes out. Eyes up and eyes out. And here's what I mean by that and what I think God has been teaching me. Is that if I can stop turning into myself and worrying about my small life and my small me, and if I can get my eyes up on who God is, well, then I'm going to find that the world's a much bigger and vast place filled with all sorts of excitement and joy and goodness that I would miss otherwise. And if I can turn myself out and get my eyes out on other people, on you, on a prayer list, and if I can get myself into the lives of these other people, then again, I find that the world around me is actually a better place, a place I want to be in because I love the people who are around me and I love the God who has made me. Eyes up and eyes out. All right, the last thing. I'm calling this an epilogue. <laughs> Every moment holy. <clears throat> Every moment holy. Here's what this means for me. There's a book, uh, there's actually a few of them now, um, called Every Moment Holy. Uh, and, uh, and what's in it is, uh, is taking a prayer uh, that gets connected to just an average moment in your day. Uh, and maybe this is like the folding of laundry, and then there's like a prayer connected to it. Uh, maybe it's the walk that, that you take every morning as you take your kids to school. Uh, maybe it's the bus drive uh, into work, right? W whatever this moment is, uh, this book series has begun to create uh, these little prayers connected to it. This is how I think uh, of what God is doing with our world. I think God's plan is not to destroy the world. It is to redeem it. It is to make all things new and to make ordinary things holy. Ordinary things like doing laundry, walking your kids to school, taking that bus ride. In fact, if you search the word holy in your favorite Bible app, what you'll find is that word holy gets connected to something else. It's used as an adjective routinely. And so whether it's holy ground, right, uh, or it's in holy people, it's a holy nation, there's various ways in which holy gets connected to something. The most generic being in the Old Testament, holy things, right? This phrase gets used a lot, actually. The holy things. And I think this is what God is doing with our world. And guess what? You and I get to be part of that. Because God has come down through the person of Jesus Christ. He has made us a holy people. And he begins to use us, these feeble instruments, to make 
the ordinary things more holy yet. Let us pray. God, our Father, you are a good God, and you love us dearly. And God, you are also a holy God. Remind us when we come to you that we are to come to you in reverence, in humility, recognizing that you are the creator and we are the created. Let us come to you with humility and simplicity. And God, let us come with thanksgiving on our hearts. Let us come crying out, holy, holy, holy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.